Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to Hot and Bothered, a podcast on climate politics in the time of coronavirus. We are hosted by Descent Magazine, and our producer is Colin Kenneborough. This week, we are very excited to be talking to Jedediah Britton Purdy, who is a professor of law at Columbia Law School. His books include, most recently, This Land is Our Land, The Struggle for a New Commonwealth, and After Nature. He contributes to The Nation, The New Republic, The Atlantic, Jacobin, and N Plus One, among other outlets, and is a member of the Descent editorial board. So, so excited to listen to uh, Jed and, and our conversation with Jed. But, you know, first we have to, I think, talk about a little bit of this week's news. And Kate, I want to start you off with Planet of the Humans. It's this new documentary, executive produced by Michael Moore, came out on Earth Day. I sort of think of it as like a zombie something. I mean, it was intellectually dead on arrival, but uh, we keep hearing about it. I keep getting friends asking me, what do you think, Daniel, of Planet of the Humans, you know? Is everything a lie? You know, do we have no hope? Blah blah blah. And I haven't had the um, fortitude to sit down and watch it, but uh, but Kate, you have. So what's what's the takeaway? What's what's your read on this on this film? God, yeah, I uh, I, I made the unfortunate mistake of watching it because I am uh, reviewing it for for the New Republic, which will be up by the time uh, this show comes out. I mean, my my top line takeaway is that. No one should watch it. It's it's just not worth your time. It's actually far worse than I thought it would be. And I had very low expectations going in. I mean, just the to give people who aren't, you know, familiar kind of basic orientation, it is a look at renewable energy and the environmental movement uh, that is very critical. Um, the I mean, the thing that really stands out and has been pointed to in a number of reviews is that I could not spot footage from this, which was filmed in the last five years, uh, generously. I think the most recent footage I saw was from the People's Climate March, which happened in New York in 2014. Uh, and and almost all the information is just so dated. I mean, the thing that, I, that besides everything that, you know, I think has been kind of well pointed out by, by different reviewers, and maybe we can link to a few in the show notes, but it really just forecloses on what should be a more interesting conversation. And I think leaves people who are interested in decarbonization to just kind of shadow box uh, with arguments that don't exist anymore because the technologies which he is saying are bad do not exist. Uh, the types of like large scale solar installations, he profiles um, are not built anymore. There are types of solar panels which just are not are not are not built anymore, um, and it's it's really just so frustrating because we should have, be having just a much more interesting conversation about what a low carbon world should look like, and and this is really really not that. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, I've been um, avoiding the movie, following your advice in advance. Um, Good call. <laughs> and it's insane because you know the last uh, two weeks basically of the internet for me have been fooled with this constant fact checks of this movie, taking down all these points in it that for the reasons you, you cite, it's, you know, out of date information, if it's even accurate at all, a smearing of Bill McKibben, that's, you know, totally groundless. And that's just a crazy place for the climate conversation to be right now. You know, um, fossil fuel, you know, advocates and executives and, and propagandists citing a movie produced by Michael Moore uh, to attack the clean energy industry and to attack the Green New Deal and all of that. It's just, um, such a terrible use of time right now. Yeah. 
So the other thing that's kind of crossed my desk uh, in terms of news this week is, of course, the ongoing conversation about the presidential campaign. And in particular, uh, we're taping today, which is a Tuesday, uh, Tuesday, May 5th. And uh, today, The Times had a story, a long story on Joe Biden's role when he was vice president directing the stimulus efforts of the Obama administration, uh, in particular in 2009. And one of the you know interesting things that the story pointed out, or a couple, are that you know Biden was a reasonably effective manager of this stimulus. He did not advocate really making the stimulus substantially bigger, and this was probably the number one problem with the Obama stimulus. It just wasn't big enough. And the story also points to something that's really been um, bothering me for the last year, which is that even though Biden was, by all accounts, a pretty competent manager of the most significant kind of economic outlays of the Obama administration, the stimulus, including you know ninety billion in clean stimulus, he never talked about it on the campaign trail. Like he never said, um, you know, you all are talking about the Green New Deal, but I was in charge of spending it, and we had such and such achievements, and did such and such things, and really proved the power of government. Instead, I think he was really scarred by the political defeats of that stimulus. They didn't really tackle unemployment. They didn't keep people in their homes, and it seems that. The political conclusion that Biden drew from it was that you can't actually make the case that government can make lives better, can rebuild an economy, and can do it in a green way. And that, if that is his political takeaway, that's just terrifying in terms of the prospects of Biden being able to sell and implement the kinds of green stimulus that so many of us are talking about right now that Biden is mentioning. But I don't, I'm not sure that his heart's in it. And I want to turn to you, Kate, because you wrote this brilliant story about the Democratic Party and austerity. And it highlighted the very sinister role Biden seems to have played in trying to sell uh, austerity to Spain, to the Spanish government in, in 2010. Um, and maybe you should just uh, share with us what you know what you picked up in, in your reporting and in a piece that you wrote for the New Republic uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's to- all totally right, Daniel. I mean, certainly, like, I was confused uh, for a while as to why why Biden just wasn't talking about what, you know, by by fairly conventional accounts of of the stimulus was a not small role in overseeing its clean energy programs, um, which again, were, you know, about, about 10% um, of, of the entire ARA, but was bigger certainly than, than anything else about 90, $90 billion. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's all exactly right. And, and I am um, in the new Republic piece, you mentioned kind of quote uh, from this, interaction which the former prime minister of Spain, Jose Luis Rodrigo Zapatero, um, he recounts in, in a 2013 memoir um, that was published in Spanish in which Biden really makes a sort of uh, strong case for austerity um, to, you know, a, a, a Spanish president who had gone to uh, enforce pretty brutal uh, austerity measures in, in, in his country. Um Per Zapatero's reading, he says, uh, in, in giving his opinion on the market, this is him writing about Biden, he told me with a harshness that until then I had not heard that the only way to gain their trust was by making decisions that made you suffer truly and thoroughly, that you were only credible in certain circumstances if you subject citizens to difficult tests, if the unions openly reject your policy, in short, if there are tears and suffering. So, you know, this this 
is from a uh, secondhand source, certainly, but but he was writing this memoir in 2013. There was not a reason to think that he was, you know, looking to under undermine future presidential candidate um, Joe Biden. And 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 yeah, I mean, I think what to get to what you were saying, Daniel. I think what is most concerning for me about this is we've seen this sort of motivated reasoning on behalf of people who you know are interested in seeing decarbonization happen to say, well, Joe Biden's climate platform is more uh, progressive than it has been. And even, you know, some people sort of pointing positively toward uh, his role in in, in the stimulus. Um, but if his sort of takeaway from all that is that austerity is actually good, uh, which, you know, he's been a deficit hawk for his whole career, um, that doesn't give me much confidence, right? That that he is actually going to try and push through a big program and, and that he just has this kind of baseline cynical role based on that experience of, of managing stimulus. Um, that government can't do good things and that people won't like it. And uh, that, you know, the the best thing to do is just to, to sort of tighten our belt. Yeah, it's, it's shocking. I mean, tears and suffering. That And that was in 2010, the meeting between Biden and Zapatero. Um, that the that is recounted. Um, so very very chilling. You know, within a year of of this successful oversight of stimulus programs in the U.S., then caving to the right wing talking points in the U.S. and then going across the ocean and advocating tears and suffering is just um, appalling. And just to just to note really briefly, I mean, in Obama's 2010 State of the Union address, he says. To quote, like any cash-strapped family, we will work within a budget to invest in what we need and sacrifice what we don't. And if I have to enforce this discipline by veto, I will, uh, which is just a Republican talking point. Yeah. I mean, Paul Krugman, love him or hate him, take him or leave him, but has definitely built a successful sub-component of his career just absolutely demolishing the household finance um, analogy for public budgets. Um so speaking of public finance and speaking of private finance, um, we are counting on listener support to make this podcast possible. So if you've listened to the first few episodes and you've liked what you've been hearing um, and you maybe have a few extra bucks a month to spare if your income is uh, protected and if you haven't signed up already, please head over to patreon.com slash hotbotheredclimate, patreon.com slash hotbotheredclimate to sign up and support the production of this podcast, making sure that it stays on the air, that it exists, sounds good. And in particular, um, making sure that we can pay our freelance producer, Colin Kinnebra. And there are a few perks if you do. So starting at $3 a month, you will get access to a virtual happy hour, uh, which we just had and was really great. And if you can pitch in at $5 or more a month, you get access to lots of other good stuff like our book, A Planet to Win, a digital subscription to Descent, uh, other Verso titles, uh, which will make your quarantine much better. We promise. So our next happy hour will be on June 9th, uh, the exact time still to be uh, announced, but we're super excited to have it. Um, we just had the last one on uh, Monday, May the 4th, uh, which was a, a really good time. We talked about Star Wars. We heard all about Kate's childhood you know, passion for the prequel movies, which apparently, uh, according to Kate Aronoff specifically, are very good. Long running path, not just childhood. Um, Kate, you know, Kate stands by her her take on on Star Wars early films. Um, so we do realize that not everyone can, of course, uh, pitch in, especially now during this this crisis. 
you can still support the podcast. Help us spread the word. Talk to your friends. Talk to your friends, friends, and your comrades about this podcast. Um, rating and reviewing us on iTunes is super helpful. And uh, tweet about the show, Hot Bothered Climate, hashtag Hot Bothered Climate. And um, feel free to be in touch. You know, send us emails, uh, suggestions for guests, uh, you name it. Um, whether it's on, on Twitter with the hashtag or at hot.bothered.climate at gmail.com. And with that said, we are very excited to bring you this conversation with Jedediah Britton Purdy. Jed, welcome to Hot and Bothered. Thanks, Daniel. Kate, I'm glad to be spending a little time with you. Likewise. Um, so maybe to start off, um, do you want to share with us where you're quarantined and how that's going for you? Yeah. After we, um, my wife and I and our eight-month-old had been isolated for a few weeks, we uh, rented a van and drove to North Carolina. Um, we live in New York. Uh, and we are staying um, in Chapel Hill, which is where she grew up and um, did her grad work and where um, her parents are, as well as lots of friends from my many years at Duke. So we're now um, near some woods, small chopped up sticky woods, but still woods. Uh, and um, it's really, uh, it's kind of a relief and a huge privilege to have some some time outside and some time uh, out in the trees. That sounds beautiful. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm in Philly. I think, Kate, you're still in Brooklyn, no? I am in Brooklyn. Yeah, I am just savoring every bit of nature we have, um, including like particularly the nice trees that I've never noticed um, and that are now really sticking out on uh, on runs and and walks and such. So I'm a little envious of the woods. That sounds that sounds really nice. I had, not in the same way, Kate, but an experience, I think, like that when we moved to New York about a year and a half ago. With nature so um, sliced up into parks, I feel like I developed an eye for some of its particulars that even living down here, I hadn't had. Like I became much more aware of the exact dates that snowdrops came out and crocuses came out and red bud bloomed because it was like watching one painting hanging in your living room change rather than a kind of ambient world change that can sneak up on you. Yeah, we, we can we can cut this if you if you don't want your Instagram on blast. But I will say that I, I knew that about you because you have such a beautiful Instagram presence, um, really tracking, you know, the evolutions of nature in, uh, in, in Manhattan, uh, Northern Manhattan that are just, it's so lovely. It's such a nice balm on a otherwise pretty bleak, uh, pretty bleak, uh, timeline. No, you are super generous to take <laughs> that way rather than to take it as being precious. I'm always a little self-conscious about the kind of, um, pastoral life that it suggests. I, am leading. Um, but I do find it's actually kind of a spur to notice, uh, to notice what's happening. No, it's, it's only appreciated. I'm, I'm forever, forever grateful. Yeah. Um, I'll just 
yeah. quickly. I mean, it reminds me of reading the Over Overstory, which is this beautiful novel uh, about trees, and it, uh, you know, a- anything to like you were saying spur all of us to just pause a little bit more uh, and observe the like living worlds seems desperately needed. I love that novel. I wonder whether you all thought it succeeded. I, um, I like, I was really excited to read it and I read it um, in a hurry and eagerly. And I took a lot of pleasure in a lot of parts of it and think generally that powers from what I've read, which is not all of it has a, has a pretty powerful imagination. Um, there's this much quoted line, if your mind were a slightly greener thing, I would fill it with meaning. It's like an address from the forest to the person. And I ended up feeling like the non-greenness of our minds was a barrier to the book, even coming close to doing the thing that I went to it hungry for, which was like an actual imaginative passage into what consciousness might be like if it were the kind of shared, networked, immobile or differently mobile thing that a forest might have. Like that didn't, the, it, there was an, a, this amazing study of the different ways that people being people can relate to trees. But the, I guess you would say the line of in between the kingdoms of nature didn't get crossed. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's right. <laughs> um, and I think that's um, that's something that we'll want to get into. Um, and I think we'll, you know, through the conversation and certainly at the end, I think want to dwell on this question of um, how we might try to think about the politics of the Green New Deal um, and other kinds of environmental politics in response to our crises and how they could connect to a, a sort of a transformation in our cultures and subjectivities. Um, which was also, I think, as you're pointing out, um, you know, it's something that we need and it's something that we don't know quite what it will look like, I think. Yes. Uh, I am. The the things on my to-do list for for the rest of this quarantine are are to read more fiction. And I unfortunately have not not read the overstory despite uh, most people in my life recommending it to me um, over, over, you know, the last couple months. Um, I mean, to, to get to what Daniel was, sort of started to bring up I mean you um, read a lot and read a lot of history sort of are um, you know I think would be safe to call you a kind of historically engaged scholar um, we've all been you know in this lockdown for over a month so I'm wondering you know at, at, at this point uh, what what's been most surprising to you about about this pandemic mm. Hmm. 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 I'm not sure that there's been a moment of real pronounced surprise because of how unformed my expectations were for it. Um, Maybe in a in a fashion, actually, the thing that's been most striking to me is how readily, not quite nimbly, but how readily we can, so many of us can just change our form of life um, in its day-to-day rhythms 
and and simply say, oh well, this is this is what we're doing now. Um, this this astonishing quality of plasticity that we have when it turns out that something is actually real and actually happening. Um, I do think we're so kind of ill prepared in in habits of thought for systemic crisis and collective response that I didn't have a lot of, of script for it coming in. And I guess I have thought that a, a good, the kind of defining features of what's happened have been depressingly um, unsurprising. The way that the um, lines of epidemiological vulnerability track lines of economic and spatial and other vulnerability. Um, I'm sure you've seen the preliminary numbers out of New York saying that Latino um, folks have well over three times the rate of infection of whites in New York and like more um, explicitly or overtly the way that the unspoken uh, U.S. policy has been basically to throw the multiracial working class into the into the breach, you know, this way that um, the lockdown means a bunch of people are hanging out at home and then a bunch of people are out on the front lines um, and um, under under the usual kinds of economic exigency, which are even more intense when they're, when they're pushing people into this kind of very visible risk. Um, you know, besides the fact that the state appears to be really well set up to channel money rapidly and supplely to support um, asset bubbles, but our unemployment systems are so you know, broken by design that more than two thirds of people who are even eligible for their relief checks aren't getting them. So stuff like that, unfortunately, um, it, it's like if the if the crisis is kind of an ink dye to show um, how things are are joined together and how they connect, it's it's a lot of what we what we already knew. I, I mean, I think that's right. We we knew it, but it's always worth, I think, talking about the the savage um, and racialized inequalities and how, how people are exposed to this. Um, I think, you know, one thing that struck me when I was rereading your latest book, this land is our land, which is a, a really beautiful book. Um, I think is the idea that our physical spaces are essential, or tightly bound up in both the ways that we're divided and the ways that we come together. And I think coming together is a, one of the big themes of your work. Um, Right now, and potentially for months or even years, the suggestion is a lot less physical proximity. Um, and I'm curious if, if during this pandemic you've been thinking differently, um, if it's changed how you think about the relationship between basically togetherness and physical spaces. If I'm curious if you've been thinking about what it means to get the kinds of togetherness that you advocate you know, virtually. Um, if maybe you're just imagining that with a bit of time, we'll go back to how things were, but sort of curious to how, how your, um, thoughts about doing work in common, doing politics in common, uh, in a context of social distancing, how are those thoughts evolving? You know, it's, it's such a, 
It's a wonderful question. Um, when you just kind of cast your, your eye back over um, the last 10 years now, maybe, maybe 12, depending how you date the kind of the long efflorescence of a new left mobilization in the country, there are elements like um, watersheds that are kind of impossible to imagine, or at least it, it would take a, a really kind of deep um, world-making imagination to imagine them happening under socially distanced circumstances. I mean, Occupy is the most straightforward, um, but... Um, the actual form if, of the 2008 Obama campaign, if you think it was an important moment, and I actually think that at least for my subgeneration, it was, um, and that it had a kind of organic relation to some of the more radical mobilizations that came forward, linked to the compromises and, and limits of that administration. Um, Moral Mondays and other kind of regional movements similarly were very intensely about bodies in proximity and bodies kind of thrown in the works of law enforcement and the social machine. And, you know, many, many of the actions associated with the movement for black lives had the same, um, same kind of spatial and bodily logic. Um, and then there's the way that a ton of what's happened has also um, happened online in ways that I think we have trouble thinking about, in part because we can't run the counterfactual of imagining what these years would have been like without um, online platforms, and also because we're all really very ambivalent about the intensely online character of a lot of the articulation of the new left, but it does seem clear that at least I think I shouldn't say clear. I think it's, it seems kind of unsettlingly plausible that two things that happen online have been um, kind of structural affordances in favor of left mobilization. One is that you get a real breakdown in the hegemony of mainstream sayability because people with views that weren't regarded as, as serious or sayable find one another and amplify one another and create a kind of horizontal permission to say things without being seen as crazy or futile. Um, and then a whole kind of chorus builds up. It's actually a little bit like, it is in some ways analogous to and in some ways very different from the human mic in an Occupy encampment. Um, and the other thing, which is more disheartening is that maybe, maybe not, is the kind of, that the long tail of consumer taste can also be a long tail of political identity and everyone can have their, um, their little magazines and their, and their platforms and so on. Um, I think the first more than the second created this kind of stunning sense for a few years, really starting with the 2016 Sanders campaign in some ways, and in some ways um, maybe with Occupy, that we were saying things that for years had been assumed to be quite marginal, if not just kind of 
laughable positions. And suddenly, um, what was rolling back was people showing up and signing up and telling pollsters that, yes, this sounded like a great, uh, a great idea. Um, and that, that was both sort of ethereal and potentially ephemeral. It was, was you know, notoriously not yet linked to the building of kind of structures of enduring uh, mobilization, community, and political identity. But it was also um, kind of a, a hurricane-like sea change. So we've had, I guess the thing that I'm trying to say is that the politics we're living in up to this point is hard to imagine without both radically new forms of remote or distanced organizing um, relative to what had come before, and also very intense um, and um, dramatic ways of putting bodies together in public. Um, and it may just be the limit of my imagination, but it's, it's, it's really hard for me to imagine a politics that doesn't involve bodies in a civic space, in a, in a, in a shared space, shared on whatever terms. Um, it's just been so uh, stitched into our idea of what it is to, to do politics in any form, either forever or at least in the way that we moderns remember forever, right? At least in the way that we imagine everything from the, the polis of the Greek slave states forward. Yeah, it's, it's, I think for folks who, you know, maybe have spent some time thinking about these sort of like small D democratic politics and, and what it means to do kind of grassroots democracy, which, I mean, so many more people have in, in, in the last couple of years since the, the Bernie campaign in 2016, um, or at least it's so confounding just because this like moment in which more people than ever um, were really kind of engaged in grassroots politics. Um, now that's you know impossible. It's a you know it's a public health hazard for the time, for the time being. Um, but I want to I want to talk a little bit about kind of what what we you know need to build in the midst of of all these circumstances. However however long the quarantine lasts, and you know extending beyond that, hopefully. Um, so you know in in your writing, you've talked about. The Green New Deal as a kind of Commonwealth politics. So I was wondering if you could talk about what what that means. Is that a method of of doing politics, a, a way of kind of shaping um, shaping demands and movements? Is it a horizon for kind of what we need to build? How would you how would you define Commonwealth politics? Um, <clears throat> I think it's probably closer to a horizon, or even to a kind of um, ethical premise of egalitarian and social democratic and socialist and eco-socialist politics as I approach them, though not necessarily as, as anyone else would, would have to approach them rather than a kind of method for, for generating demands or building power. Um, as I was writing it, I, I was aware that it feels a little um, untimely, maybe uh, a little, a little, uh, un, a little out of step to start a reflection on politics of that kind. 
with an ethical disposition. Um, I'll interrupt myself to say just a little what I talk about in the book as being the ethical attitude of Commonwealth politics. It's the idea of a strong and material egalitarianism um, in the economic and social order um, of a strong form of collective democratic rule of people over the terms of their economic uh, share of their shared material shared lives. And it's an orientation toward social and ecological reproduction as the, as a central and maybe the central locus of value, um, the work that needs to be prized and cultivated and held up uh, and, and so on. Um, and so as I was saying, it's, it, it has seemed to me, and again, it may just be my own weird perspective, that although there's a really strong and defining set of ethical commitments that characterize the new socialism, um, they're mostly articulated through... Um, what's negated. And there's plenty to negate. And in negating it, you kind of build up uh, commitment to the version of solidarity and sharing and safety um, and emancipation that um, you want. Uh, but the kind of articulation of an, an ethical perspective as a starting point seems to me a little bit not at home in the public life of, of that politics. And it may be to the extent that that's true. I suspect it has something to do with what that politics is reacting against, which is a sentimental um, liberalism that was grossly inflated in terms of its ability to support all kinds of like all kinds of just public bullshit um, uh, being treated as serious political thought and a sentimental communitarianism that talked about being about coming together, about being together, but had no interest in either the material transformation or the exercises of insurgent power toward that material transformation that would be necessary to make talking about um, coming together be something other than just a kind of um, just, just, just talk. Um, so, and actually just talk laid over very serious forms of injustice, which is much worse than just talk. Um, so I, the, um, if the, if the use that I make in, in this land of the idea of a Commonwealth politics has any kind of strategic value, it would be that Maybe anyone from a, a Warren supporter who really likes Greta to a um, kind of apolitical Christian ecologist to a Wendell Berry reader might be able to find a way in through it and, and reach the case, which is really at the heart of the book, that something in the form of a Green New Deal, especially the way that the two of you and your co-authors have fleshed it 
out in a, in a thoroughgoing way is the only way that you can make good on these kinds of ideals. And if you think that they're the correct or an attractive ethical disposition, then that's just where you've got to go. Um, I, you know, I, I love the, I mean, just totally here for the takedown of the sentimental liberal and, and communitarian politics, um, and digging into the more material project. Um, I think, you know, we'll want to, I think, dig in a bit more on, on this idea of Commonwealth politics. And, and one initial way to do that, I think, is actually to think about um, precedents, which, which folks can, can, you know, maybe visualize or, or see as a kind of concrete example. So, I, you know, when I think of the precedents that people are talking about now, there's a lot. There's the New Deal. There's the Civil Rights Movement. There are the abolitionist Republicans of the 19th century, traditions of socialism in the U.S. and elsewhere in your book a really rich and interesting discussion about the long environmental justice movement, you know, things like industrial toxicology. Um, so these days, when you look for a historical precedent or an example of what doing Commonwealth politics might look like, you know, what, what comes most readily to mind? I go to the examples you just gave, um, particularly the, these days, the ways that the New Deal for all of its famous failures and limitations was a really bold majoritarian effort to remake the material life of a country at every level from its built infrastructure to the terms of interaction in the workplace to who controlled the shape of commodities markets. I mean, at at one point or another, you, you had the whole order of things getting taken on and within the setting of a kind of acceptance that if you really wanted to build power, you had to be fighting toward a majoritarian democratic victory because ultimately nothing else could, could build it and keep it. Um, So I I, there seems to me a kind of radical realism in the materiality and the majoritarianism of the New Deal precedent that makes it, um, is among, those are among, I think, the other reasons that it's a really appealing, it's a generative precedent for thinking about what we have in front of us now. You know, a lot of liberal and even progressive at, um, political organizing such as it is in in the last 20 years has sort of been oriented explicitly or implicitly to the idea that if you make a good enough argument, whether it's um, one about clever econometric um, policy engineering or it's about constitutional interpretation, you can persuade a benign elite to make a concession and give people good things. Um, and that's, that really, really takes a long time to work your way out of if you've been socialized into it. I think socialization into that kind of disposition, which is fundamentally, it's conciliatory before the, before the struggle rather than after or in the course of the struggle. Um, I think it has something to do with my, my class um, of um, legal academic professionals, uh, half generation older than the two of you, had so much trouble 
getting with the Bernie campaign because there was some way in which it just it, it broke or set athwart their political imagination. So the, the, the way that the New Deal was based on a, a democratic insurgency against a set of um, traditional monetarist um, technocratic elites and um, juristocratic elites on the Supreme Court, um, as well as its, uh, as I said, its engagement at the level of the landscape in the built world. Um, I think I'm with you. I think the New Deal is a good precedent and the ways that it's problematic, we should be um, sifting and, and exploring, not running away from. Yeah, I want to I want to dig in a little bit more to that. I mean, in your writing, you emphasize the the need to come together and for a sort of non sentimental, genuine finding common ground, uh, right? But I mean, you also I, th- I think as as you were kind of just raising, there's also a, a real kind of healthy respect for uh, conflict as as a means of of developing solidarity. And I mean, thinking back to the New Deal, that is a history marked by conflict. I mean, I think there's a sort of popular imaginary about how the New Deal happened, which says, you know, Roosevelt is elected and all of these great programs sort of flow out from um, from his pen. But uh, that is, that is you know, not what happened. There were fights within kind of the brain trust, within the circle of advisors, within, um, within Congress, and, and of course, you know, sort of massive numbers of strikes and labor actions mm-hmm. then throughout the 19... 19- 1930s and 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 we're you know living in a in a different moment but i think what we have in common certainly on this call is is that we need something uh a, a very serious green new deal uh in order in order to kind of get where where we need to be on the climate and you know for um a whole host of other concerns as well and that's harder i mean we're not we're not going to have certainly a, a franklin roosevelt in the office uh of of of, of president um, we won't have an ally like Bernie or even Warren, um, and you know the the landscape of of what it looks like to organize on the left now looks uh, certainly more complicated than it did mm-hmm. a couple of months ago. Um, and you know the climate movement itself will need to get bigger. And I think as as many lessons as we can we can draw from the New Deal as you were you know just getting to um, the the coalition that that brings into existence of Green New Deal will, will obviously um, look a lot different, right? So that's, you know, that's all to say. Um, we have a lot of work ahead of us. And and I think if the contest is between Trump and Biden, we hope Biden wins. But uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what kind of political conflict you think the left should be, should be thinking of both, you know, to get things done, uh, and and to grow its own ranks and to you know to create that sort of virtuous cycle. Um, how do you think we should be pressuring Biden, kind of you know, ignoring him and focusing on Congress, taking on Wall Street? You know what what is what is the sort of path to to democratic engagement in your view look like um, over over the next several months and years? So I'll I will say that I right now find myself looking more to the the um, author collective that goes by uh, Comrade Planet, uh, then to my own head for for this thinking. So um, if I, I'll say a couple of things, um, 
among friends. Uh, and then I would love to know how, how you all are thinking about, about the questions you just posed as well. Um, first among friends, I'm very worried right now, actually, um, at the end of the Bernie campaign that we're, we might be a good deal more powerless uh, in the left even than we, than we thought. Um, the sense of, of really heady possibility and of real potential majorities for a lot of the um, building blocks of our programs was there. But the ability actually to make anyone pay for ignoring them right now is not clear in an electoral field where Biden and Trump are the alternatives and where our presence in the House, let alone the Senate, is actually pretty small, even if it's charismatic. Um, and when I think about the New Deal precedent, one thing that's that's very striking, which other people are much, much, much deeper on than I am, and you all can correct me in my simplification, but there is a way that the height of industrial labor action involved the capacity to wield actual power over people who needed you and needed you in the mine or in the factory and were really kind of fucked when you stopped or um, or even um, occupied the, the space and refused to work um, compared to most of our kind of decentralized and relatively de-skilled because mechanized, no disrespect to people's, to people's work, but um, you know, uh, designed to be uh, interchangeable, um, designed to make people plug and play kind of economy. Um, so it's, it's harder to see where the pressure points are. And I think it's in part because it's hard to see where they are. And, and because a lot of our political theater, not meaning that in a derisive sense, like Occupy, like Moral Mondays, even like some of the actions that won't speak for all of them in the movement for black lives really do depend on succeeding as a, an appeal to either elite or majoritarian conscience, because the actions themselves just don't exercise the form of power that actually moves levers, that levers have to be moved elsewhere. So whether we have any real power to swing those levers, I, I don't know right now. I find myself at the moment, not, not exactly more pessimistic, but really troubled by the size of the gap between the confidence and articulacy and widespread appeal of some of the basics of what people have been working to lay out with really remarkable rapidity and lucidity on the left uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the ability to make anyone who's um, actually running institutions respond to it. Um, so I think I, I, I do have the very boring kind of feeling that it's really it's necessary not to give up on electoral and on national electoral politics because in the absence of a clear and viable strategy to build um, 
other kinds of power as the primary locus of of making people do things, which I have trouble seeing us doing, except in a a fashion that's complementary to political power. I think you've got to fight for, got to fight democratically for command of the state. Um, And then if we succeeded, we'd have another great historical test of um, visions of political change, which is what what you can do with the state if you're up against at least some of the forces of um, of organized capital. It's very hard to see a Green New Deal in the next in the next twenty years that doesn't involve an intense series of strategic alliances with. Um, fractions and recompositions of capital that could do well by it. That's not my ideal, but I, but I don't see, um, I don't see another way that you line up enough power soon enough. Um, in terms of majorities, I, I guess I hesitate to draw any rapid conclusions from what happened to, to Bernie's campaign in part because, you know, most campaigns, don't succeed, and we have we have one, <laughs> we have one to try to draw lessons from. Um, but I, I'm I'm curious what you all think about all of this. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I am completely on board that we need to keep fighting for democratic majorities. Um, there will be more presidential elections. There's you know Senate races, governor races, and all that. So I'm on board for that, and I'm also persuaded, of course, that we'll need some fractions of capital to be allies. I mean, we're just not in a position <laughs> to overthrow uh, the entire system tomorrow. Um, certainly not if we can't even get Bernie elected in a primary. Um, I guess the, I mean, the thing that I think I was hoping to push you on and we have to push ourselves on is we we need enemies to mobilize against, to mobilize like a multiracial working class against. And I think in the climate movement, we have successfully spotlighted and waged kind of war on the fossil fuel industry, but that's definitely not going to be enough. Um, it's not enough of an enemy. It's, it's, it would be a triumph to split it off in the rest of capital, but we probably need to do even more. And I guess the question that I can't figure out an answer to is if Biden wins and it's with very different story, like Biden, Klobuchar, Biden, Harris versus let's say Biden, Warren, you know, with each of the VPs, obviously the presumptive next one, but who who else to polarize against? I mean, the problem with polarizing against the Republican Party is you can end up with a very crappy version of Democratic Party fetishism. If you just mobilize against fossil fuels, you're not really talking about the new world you want to build. If you're mobilizing against the you know a Biden, then there are questions about the ability to grow the coalition. So that's something that I'm wrestling with right now, and I'm curious to hear what what Kate's take in terms of like leveling up, picking enemies beyond, I guess, the Republican Party, beyond the fossil fuel industry in a way that will build a specifically like multiracial um, working class movement. Yeah, I mean, the thing that um, I've been thinking a lot about just in the last couple of weeks is I am just looking to, you know, nurses, delivery workers, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the service sector. Um has been sort of showcased as, as these uh, workers who really keep society going I mean, in a way that like advertising executives just um, do not. Uh, and, and, you know, the definition of who is an essential worker, I think is really interesting to think about uh, in 
relief to the the conversation about what choke points look like. Um, and we have seen uh, the sort of you know upswing of of strike activity. There's there's been workers walking off the job, demanding PPE, um, which is all really I mean really just incredible incredible to see. I think, but I, I think I, I also just you know come back to how different work is right and and you know in some ways how successful um the kind of new deal backlash was in, in disempowering unions um and and disempowering you know vehicles for working class power insofar as you know if you work in a mine in west virginia or somewhere else um you know you live in that community people are not readily like moving moving there in the in the 1930s to to go work in the mine and and you know if you decide not to dig up uh, a mineral on a certain day. Uh, nobody is, is, you know, there is no app which will call another miner um, to, uh, to, to go down to, you know, several feet underground. Um, there's a, a sort of, you know, you said plug and play aspect to, to the workforce today, which I think is, um, is really challenging, right? I think, the, you know, more parts of the economy have been designed to be replaceable um, in a way that is, is really, uh, tough to think about where workers can exert power, but I think we're you know starting to see um, some glimmers of that maybe. Um, also thinking about the teacher strikes uh, in, in the last couple of years, and and those are of course workforces which are predominantly uh, made up of women, uh, predominantly people of color, um, and I think you know I the challenge I, I keep thinking about is just sort of a an institutional one, I guess, which is that. There does seem to be a lot more, um, uh, a lot more energy uh, around strike action than there has been in the last several years, and that you know can be harnessed toward really powerful ends. But at the same time, I think the kind of institutional vehicles uh, that would be needed to extract sort of big, big changes from capital um, are a little bit are a little bit lacking. There's not, you know, a John L. Lewis kind of yelling at <laughs> Roosevelt. And so, yeah, I think that, I think that's, that's kind of where, where my head is that, is that there's seems like a lot of sort of ambient energy and the Bernie campaign managed to crystallize. I think a, a lot of that um, in some imperfect ways. Right. But uh, what is the kind of, you know, tip of the sphere, I guess, um, that, that can, can really, uh, drive that forward in a way that's more than just, you know, pointing to a strike here and there and being excited about that, but something that's really uh, has, has weight to it. Yeah. Kate, I really, I really agree with what I, I hear as the sort of perception that talk about essential workers is in some ways a kind of incipient social recognition of what social reproduction <laughs> is. Um, like the actual, as you said, the actual work of keeping us going, of keeping life going on, is a, picks out a very different uh, cross section of the day's labors than uh, pay scale rank, for example. Um, and it does seem like there's a potential to draw on that recognition to try to articulate. A stronger political, a more stronger, stronger, more widely shared um, political vision of what kind of work to celebrate and what kind of work to put at the very center of our sort of understanding of what we're trying to honor and reward. Um, and in terms of the enemy, the target, 
I thought one thing that Bernie's campaign did so powerfully this time through that was kind of invisible in the mainstream coverage, which really was as bad as the online left thought it was, um, it, it was turning people's shame at healthcare bankruptcy and illness and at like having failed or been defeated in this society into a basis of solidarity and a sense of possible power through testimony at the campaign rallies, people just getting up and saying, this is what happened. And we were totally fucked. And like, we are totally fucked. And this is like, this is me right now. Um, Extraordinary. I think how powerful shame remains in the um, cruel optimism to borrow a term of American economic life. And in some ways, the the anger at that at that as a form of consciousness and a cultural political disposition was a part of what made the campaign such a powerful genuinely left populist campaign and i think a part of what really tweaked out people who are kind of psychically invested in the idea that fundamentally this is a pretty good system that works and just needs a few um, a few adjustments so like so that's itself kind of a target. Um, historically, the modern left has not liked um, ready capital mobility, especially capital mobility that outruns democratic capacity and outruns the capacity of workers to keep up with it. Um, I think the way that Trump mobilized anti-globalization sentiment to link it to his you know, putrid forms of racism and nationalism has sort of has maybe created some ambivalence about um, being anti-globalization in the sense of the left alt-globalization of the, of the late 90s that sort of went underground after 9-11. But I think, um, I think if you're going to build a popular majority and you're targeting segments of capital, I think... Um, Capital mobility and the speculative, the speculative capital of Wall Street, which are sort of two dimensions of our general capital-first global legal regime, are probably are probably targets. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Um, and I, I I love the point about the Bernie campaign ticking on um, shame um, and this kind of notion that it's you know it's everybody's individual um, fault. I want to pivot a little bit, and some of this is evoked in your point about capital mobility, to the question of the the state and the legal profession's role in that. Um, you're a leader in a fascinating new movement within the legal profession um, that I think we could roughly call the law and political economy movement. Um, this is, to me, a hugely exciting development, but it's also something I think that is not maybe super widely known. So for those who haven't heard of the law and political economy kind of movement or move, um, what does it mean? Um, what's it about? And what are the stakes of this uh, of this new, I guess I'd call it intellectual or kind of professional movement? Great. I'd love to talk about that a little bit. And I think it may sound to some people like the legal profession just catching up with the world and with what people in, in other domains have known. Um, but it may matter that we're trying to play catch up in part because the law is such an essential domain where 
power and ideas get put into uh, into actual effect and get traction and create the webs of institutions and procedures that actually enable people to do what they do to one another or keep them caught where they are. Um, so one way you could begin to describe this movement, let's call it LPE, Law and Political Economy, is that it's a reaction against a formation we've diagnosed as being at the heart of legal scholarship and a lot of legal practice in the last 50 years. Um, and that formation is a kind of division of labor between two domains of law. Um, one area you could call the law of the economy. It's antitrust law. It's a law of contracts. It's labor law. It's arbitration law, employment law, um, the law of intellectual property. We could, we could go on. Um, and that whole vast area, which really, as Karl Polanyi would have understood, constitutes economic life by creating um, and assigning and, and shaping all the rights that people have to control resources and control one another, um, got reoriented from older versions of the different fields that, for various reasons, a lot of them actually grounded in the New Deal, like the incipiently democratic or partly democratic labor law of the New Deal, contained a lot of different values, some of them egalitarian and good, some of them mixed and complicated. They got uniformly reoriented to an ideal of economic efficiency that when you shook it out, amounted to a license for market-making kinds of law reform and a general orientation toward wealth maximization with no interest in distribution or even arguably even more important, the shape of economic power, which were absolute fixations for the New Deal era of legal scholarship, um, just got washed out. Um, and if you look field after field, antitrust law is famously an example where it was founded in an effort to control corporate power and concentrated ownership. And by the 90s was just giving a pass to corporate mergers and to new forms of platform power like Amazon. Um, field after field got changed in the same kind of way, um, became basically uh, handmaidens to um, neoliberal economic organization and became one of the kind of important institutional battering rams of neoliberalism. Like if you ask, how did this idea do what it did? Um, law reform that broke unions, built up corporate power, smoothed the um, workings of neoclassical labor markets, um, took away people's rights through the nominally consensual contract form of arbitration agreements. Um, it was one of the major fronts. So that was half the division of labor, reorienting economic law toward um, the implementation of neoliberalism, crudely put. Uh, and the second thing uh, was to assign the issues of fairness and equality and liberty that got written out of economic law to a version of constitutional law, mostly constitutional law, also anti-discrimination law and some other areas of what we call public law. Um, that themselves got turned more and more into definition, uh, in, into operational definitions of concepts like equality that um, effectively shielded economic power from constitutional claims and constitutional forms of criticism so that the country's official primary way of talking about liberty and equality was 
um, adjudicated, adjudged to have no real economic content. And the, the specifics of this have to do with cases holding that there's no constitutional, uh, meaningful constitutional review of economic inequality, even in the form of savagely very different uh, levels of funding for public schools, for example, um, that there's no review on the basis of constitutional racial injustice for policies that predictably and pervasively and intersectionally um, reproduce racial inequality through nominally neutral forms like applying tests or criminal justice procedures or other things that pick up differences in resources and pick up background racism and so spit out much worse results for people of color than for white people, but without explicitly treating anyone differently. All of this, which is like clearly the legacy of a long history of injustice, was taken off the state's books by reformulations of constitutional claims that shielded um, these forms of inequality. Um, so you get a kind of world of law in which a whole body of the law is devoted to a version of economic organization from which power and justice and equity have been written out. And then you get an area of law nominally devoted to the justification and critique of power and the enforcement of fairness and aversion of equality. But it turns out to be completely denuded of economic claims. And when you put these two things together, you get a naturalization and encasement or shielding of an increasingly neoliberal economic order as the kind of sum result of the activity of the law. So our work has been to identify and diagnose that and then to try to propose a shift in the activity of legal scholarship and practice and ultimately of lawmaking itself to put back at the center again themes of power, who has, has it, how it's produced in the economy as well as through the state, um, equality as a kind of governing goal and democratic control rather than the forms of uh, judicial and economic technocratic control that underlay the shift that I was just talking about uh, as the ultimate source of legal ordering. So that's what we've, that's what we've been doing. Um, we've just published a sort of synthetic polemical paper on this um, called Building a Law and Political Economy Framework in the Yale Law Journal, which I would um, encourage people to take a look at if they'd like to see this spelled out a little more. And we also have a lot of short pieces in new symposia and stuff all the time at a site called uh, the Law and Political Economy blog, the LPE blog. Great. Thanks so much for that uh, really great primer on the Law and Political Economy movement. And I would urge listeners to, to check it out and we'll have links on our show notes. Uh, Jed, the, the last thing I want to ask you about kind of brings us back to a theme that this conversation started with, which is, you know, consciousness and, and subjectivity, you know, how we see ourselves in the world and even our relationship to non-human uh, natures. Um, so I'd love to hear you maybe in closing, just talk a little bit about how you think uh, our subjectivity as people in the world might change in the course of fighting for and hopefully winning a Green New Deal. One of the 
standard barriers to all kinds of radical thinking about social organization, especially at the kind of basic level of saying, well, we need to value different kinds of work. We need to um, find satisfaction in the cultivated collaboration and leisure um, that we might be able to enjoy in shared abundance rather than in private luxury. Um, All of this gets dismissed uh, in neoliberal and not only neoliberal reason as unrealistic because that's supposed to be just not how people are. You know, we know how people are and people are homo economicus or some version of that, just like people are supposed to be inherently nationalist, even though that was invented a few centuries ago and so forth. Um, And the response, I think, and you and I had a great conversation with Alyssa Battistoni about this uh, a few months ago, um, is that just as you don't um, first create, like achieve citizens who are capable of having a democracy and then generate a democracy for them to live in, but people and their institutions create one another mutually and dialectically in the forms of institutions um, give new form to habits and motives and to the sense of what's possible by way of people living in those institutions and acting in them. Um, the, the Green New Deal is going to have to work in the same kind of way, um, creating institutions that make it possible to have a different kind of relation to one another, to live in less economic fear, to live with more of a sense that you are accountable to other people, even people far away, even people you don't know, to generations that are coming to the larger living world, and that there are forms of satisfaction and forms of abundance to be had in that. That, um, that has to be the setting in which a green new human emerges you know, voluntarily and freely and in a kind of constant conversation with their um, post-natural but sort of natural environment. Um, a lot of, the, of this land is about how we're a species that's thoroughly made by our infrastructure, all the powers we exercise, all the ways we interact with one another, Everything that we think of as making us human and our ability even to stay alive is intensely mediated by this vast, weighty, complex built environment. Um, And it makes us into one kind of person in terms of our ecological impact, in terms of our desires, in terms of our compulsions. And remaking that is the only way that we set ourselves free from it. And we can only do it within it in some ways, but through incremental kinds of change that make us a little different each time. So I think the Green New Deal has that promise. It's not just a kind of, it gets beyond green austerity uh, and beyond the denial of desire toward the idea that we could actually emancipate one another into a new form of um, genuinely life-sustaining um, collaboration and, and and even desire and even pleasure. I couldn't think of a better place to end on. Thank you so much, Jed. Thanks so much for coming on, Jed. This is absolutely fantastic. It's so good to talk to you both. Thank you so much for doing this. That was Jedediah Breton Purdy, professor of law at Columbia Law School. His books include most recently, This Land is Our Land, The Struggle for a New Commonwealth, and After Nature. 
He contributes to The Nation, The New Republic, The Atlantic, Jacobin, and M Plus One, among other outlets, and is a member of the Descent editorial board. Yeah, it was so great to listen to Jed. Um, it's really thrilling to hear about the law and political economy movement, which I think exemplifies actually a broader turn uh, all across the economy to be taking political economy seriously again. Um, I'm going to just take this chance to kind of plug one other essay, which we'll post in show notes by our friends Seth Prinz and Brett Story called Connecting the Dots uh, Between Mass Incarceration, Health and Equity and Climate Change. Um, so you've been listening to Hot and Bothered, a climate podcast in the time of coronavirus. That's it for this episode. Once again, we're hosted by Descent Magazine and produced by Colin Kinnebra. If you like what you've been hearing, please help us spread the word. Tweet about the show using the hashtag HotBotheredClimate. And if you're able to, pitch in to keep the podcast running, cover our cost of production, and generally keep us sounding good. You can do that at patreon.com slash HotBotheredClimate. Again, that's patreon.com slash HotBotheredClimate. Until next time, stay hot. Stay bothered. Stay inside.